Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the inventor of Bitcoin. Oops, did I say that out loud? But in my spare time, I talk tech. You're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. Today, I'm in San Francisco with Casey Newton, the Silicon Valley editor of The Verge, who is co-hosting with me in anticipation of his upcoming podcast, Converge. Having a good time? Having a great time. Well, we're trying to do some interesting and give Casey a little tryout because he needs a little improvement on his interviewing skills. And <laughs> since, uh, you know, we just want to, we want to, we have, want him to do well in the podcast business. That's, That's right. Not better than us, but, but well, us. And I mean that in a royal way. Anyway, Casey is joining me for several episodes of Recode Decode this month. And today we're thrilled to have Megan Quinn in the red chair. She's a general partner at Spark Capital and previously worked at Google, Square, and Kleiner Perkins. At Spark, her investments have included Coinbase, which we'll talk about, uh, Slack, Niantic. Megan, welcome to Recode Decode. Those are great investments, all of those. Thank you for having me, yeah. and happy birthday. Thank you. It's my birthday. That's true. I am older. I'm not very wise. But. I'm so excited we're, we're having a birthday podcast for you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Where's the cake? Uh, Megan well, baked me Megan cookies. Megan baked cookies, yeah. Megan brought cookies. Right, you but I mean, in a way them. it was for both of us. In a way. She made them. She did. Thank you, Megan. That's really nice. I yeah. have to say, uh, uh, Mark Andreessen did not bake me cookies in any way when he did his podcast. <laughs> Neither did any of the other VCs, fascinatingly. Anyway, um, let's get let's get to, right away for your stuff. You've got some amazing investments. So one of the things we like to do on... Um, on Recode Decode, is get people's history. Not like, you don't have to go back to high school or anything like that, but I want to sort of get uh, people a sense of um, of where you came from and how you got to where you are. And, I, and maybe a good place to start would be with something that you tweeted, uh, I believe, last week. And Neil Dash was playing this fun game on Twitter, sort of give a shout-out to somebody who oh, helped yeah. you early in your career before you had to. And, Megan, you tweeted that uh, in college in 2003, Meryl Stone convinced you to join you at what you thought was a boring search engine company instead of going to work uh, for uh, the Weinstein brothers at Miramax. <laughs> so I'd like to hear that entire story, yes. if you could. Uh, absolutely. So during that. college, I was an intern at Miramax. So I'm originally from Los Angeles, so the entertainment thing always seems sort of interesting. And I would intern there during my summers. And so more I More than one. More than one. And I knew the Weinstein brothers from afar, but I'm not claiming to have known them directly. Well, I was good. a plebeian. That turns out to be a good thing. Um, but after school, of course, I was thinking about returning to LA. It's where my family is. I had had these gigs in the entertainment business. And so that seemed really natural. And it was about halfway through my senior year that a friend of mine, Meryl Stone, who, Kara, you may have recalled, she was one of Larry and Sergey's very first assistants back in the I day. I do not remember her, but perhaps. I'm sure she's made my appointments with them Yes, I went for lunch um, there. And so she had been a year ahead of me at Stanford, and she loved working there. She was like, it's an extension of college. It's so great. And at the time, let's recall, this was before Gmail, so it was truly just so white this page. this was what year? 2003. End of 2003. So it was early, early on. It was past the garage, but when they were in that tiny little office space. It was it was early, but not early, early. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the only thing I knew about Google was the white homepage that we all know. And she said, just come in, meet some people. And I said, sure. And so this was before Google had optimized their interview process. So I had 18 interviews, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, including with some people you definitely remember, like Cindy McCaffrey. Sure, absolutely. Um, who ended up being my first boss. Yeah, she just keeps tweeting vacation photos I since know. she left 100 years ago, like a very smart person. <laughs> and, she did uh, one the other day. I she was the first like, one out, actually. Yeah, she was. Um, and David Crane. Uh-huh. 
And to tell you how much, little I knew about the company, I sat down with David Crane, and he was like, well, why are you interested in Google? And I had like looked at the website super quick before coming over. And I was like, well, it just seems that Larry and Surge are really on to something here. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'm sorry, what was that? And I was like, Surge? I had never seen the name Sergey. It shows right. how sheltered I guess I was. Um, and, you know, 18 interviews later, and I'm sure lots of different intelligence tests or something, um, I got an offer, and I still was like, eh. So it would be Susan Wojcicki would have might have been in that group. Was she, she was definitely in the group. I had to interview with Larry and Sergey, so mm-hmm. it was a point in time when they were still interviewing they were, they everybody. Were interviewing everybody at that um, time. They asked me one question. Which was? How would you organize a bookshelf? Oh, that wow. was there. What was your answer? I am not a particularly creative person. I said alphabetically by last name. That's what I would have done too. Really? Wow. This I is could before be Instagram. This is before people were color coding their bookshelves. No, okay? Color coding. <laughs> I like the Warby Parker method of putting books on shelves by color. They do it by color over there? Oh, yeah. I find the that white books it's, it's the too precious books. for my taste. Oh, I love it. I think it's so fantastic. So you passed the bookshelf let me, test. Let me interject. So you, did, so you were interviewing for what job? It was a generalist Marcom role. Right. Um, so David Crane was in PR. People yeah. And yeah. so I worked for Cindy. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, my first actual activity was kind of being a gopher for the IPO. I mean, I was nobody. I was like taking, accepting the gifts that people kept giving them and then filing away who they had to write thank you notes for. But um, that was was the the best gift. What was the best gift? Um, Well, this is when those socks came in with the little little toe, oh, they, and, they wore them. and they loved them, they loved the, the toe socks. To yeah. um, so that was that was a real highlight of the many Morgan Stanley gift baskets. Oh, nice. Well, Sergey's wearing, I think I was at an event the other day, he was wearing toe socks. I think I'm pretty sure. So anyway, so you just did sort of just scout work, essentially. I did, and um, I was part of an acquisition team that fall, so after the IPO, um, for a company called Keyhole, which was led by John Hankey, and that ultimately served as the ender pinging, pinging for Google Earth and Google maps. And I was a historical map collector by personal passion. I've collected maps since what? I was a kid. Yep. Okay. Um, I've always loved maps. Uh, it's I always tell my husband, MG, that if the house catches on fire, like leave the photos, leave the Apple products, grab the maps. maps. Um, and so I was really excited to work on um, what would end up being Google Local and Google Maps and um, went through a, a series of different jobs at Google in my seven and some odd years there. What what was it about historical maps that got you so excited from a young age? I've always loved maps because I've found them to be sort of the perfect intersection of utility and design. Like, I find them personally beautiful, aesthetically interesting, especially the further back you go, the more interesting they are. I mean, there's mm-hmm. places, that, you know, in the oceans that they had monsters that they believe were there, and you, this year too shall not pass, and so on and so forth. But at, at the time in which they were created, they were actually a utility. They, they help people get around. And so... I was very attracted to the idea of being a part of cartography 2.0. So so interesting. You are probably not the easy. You use maps like I did, like in cars. We, I had maps. Did you have a Thomas Guide back Thomas in the day? Guide, the blue, yeah. the blue, blue cover Thomas Guide. So you use them. Um, it's interesting. They A lot of geeks are interested in mapping, like Jack Dorsey. He likes subway maps, though. They like transit maps and things like that. He likes to see how cities move. Cities move and stuff like that. But you just like map, just beautiful maps in general. Yeah, I like all elements of I them. I just saw a bunch at the Exploratorium that are wonderful. They have up, up and upstairs. They have tons and tons of historical maps. Well, actually, there. San Francisco has a this collector, David Rumsey, who's famous. He has like one of the largest collection of historical maps in the world. It's actually, and he's just downtown. So, well, that's fantastic. So you did that. So then what? 
So you were there. Well, and, and so something that I want to f- sort of focus in on is, Megan, if I remember this correctly, you were doing communications around Google Maps, and then at some point you moved to a product role, right. which I feel like is something that's pretty unusual in the tech world. So how did that, how did that come about? Yeah, it's unusual in the tech world. It's unusual in the Google world, too. So um, I do not have a computer science degree. and A problem when, at Google. When I left, I think there was something, I'm going to get the number wrong, but let's call it 400-odd product managers. And I was one of four that didn't have some sort of technical degree, maybe electrical engineering or something. Um, well, what happened was, quite honestly, is that Nokia bought Navtech and TomTom bought Teleatlas. And now we're dating all of ourselves here. But at the time, that seemed really threatening um, because Nokia was a fierce competitor. And we depended upon them for the data for our mm-hmm. maps. And so we started to think, you know, maybe we need to have data independence if this category is going to be important to us, both from a consumer product perspective as well as from an advertising product and perspective. information perspective. Exactly. Um, so I started a project um, at that time with Sebastian Thrun, who I think you both know, um, who's gone on to found Udacity. And he was the technical lead. I was the product lead for something called Ground Truth. And frankly, I, I got the job, um, I think because I was the most interested in maps and I'd worked with John and he trusted me a lot. Um, so it started off as a large business development effort. We went around the world. We were acquiring different data types. Fun fact, every single geopoint on the Earth requires 22 different data types. Um, So you need polygons to know if you should fill in the map with water um, or if it should be a forest and be green. Um, You need geocodes, you need road names, you need road directions, so on. So it started off as a massive business development effort. And then when we had enough data acquired um, to actually start building is when I moved over to the product role. Um, So I, I did quite a tour of duty within Google and then led that from a product perspective for a number of years. Right, which was one of the more successful effort. The mapping was critical to Google because then they bought, um, besides Keyhole, the one that did all the the cars, the search, that was from a Stanford group. Yeah, uh, for Street View. So Street View actually was not only just to give consumers street-level imagery of the world around them, which is interesting into itself, but also so that we could build the map because Mm -hmm. you need to have street-level imagery to understand road direction and road priority. Is something a major highway? Is it a backcountry road? Um, and so I moved to the product product role for that. And actually, given that I brought some cookies, there's a good anecdote around that. When we launched the U.S. internally, um, so we were dog fooding, which is a famous kind of Google uh, notion at the time, um, it was really critical that we get as much feedback from people as possible about errors that we had. We, we knew we weren't 100% correct, but if we were going to exchange this map that people were using every day in a number of products with one that we had homegrown built, it needed to be perfect. Expectations were high. Um, so basically, I started a three-month-long effort to uh, have people, dog food, find uh, errors. Um, and there was a different number of different ways that we asked them to find errors. And then for every bug they submitted, I baked a cookie <laughs> um, wow. and sent it to them. I ended up making 8,000 cookies, over 8,000 cookies. as part of this debugging effort. Um, And uh, then we launched it. That's such a friendly way to do it because most Google people are just rude. (laughs) That was really nice of you. (laughs) And so I I get a sense why you left Google at this point uh, because you're way too nice. Um, So you don't have to insult Google. So you you were there doing that. Why why did you leave then? So in 2011, John Hankey and I actually spun out into an autonomous unit. Mm -hmm. Um, So this was an effort that Google was doing. Exactly. And John had been there for 
a while been extremely successful. Uh, Google obviously wanted to keep him, but I think what he was interested in doing was figuring out ways that we could leverage the map data that we had just spent all this money, frankly, mm-hmm. building um, for new products and services that maybe weren't Google Maps, weren't directions or local search. And so he started an autonomous unit. He took me and four or five other people with him. Um, what were they called? They had a funny name. Niantic. I know Niantic did, but what they, the, that effort was called something within Google. AUs is how yeah. we always referred to it for our mm-hmm. autonomous units. But mm-hmm. um, So we went and we started Niantic, this group of us, and I worked with him on that for a while before ultimately going over to Square. Mm-hmm. So you, you the, the idea behind Niantic, explain that. That was... To use these. He tried something else before that. What was before it was Pokemon? So the first product was something called Field Trip. Field Trip, that's Um, right. My kids went on it. That's why. I love Field Trip to this day. I think it should exist. And the concept around Field Trip was what if you could walk through Wikipedia? So as you're walking down the street, you get pushed an old photo of what that building looked like, an interesting fact about what happened at this intersection. You know, just what would it be like if you had all of the world's geotagged information at your fingertips in a way that wasn't annoying and was interesting and compelling and so forth? So that was the first project, um, and then... It was kind of wonky. My kids did it, and I remember they did it at the Presidio, right? It was all over. Um, right. But it was a time before push notifications were really clean and right. well worked it, it out. Feel, it feels like something that could still work today, but it's still kind of waiting on the right hardware, right? right. Like, if, I think if Google Glass had been a massive success, like, Field Trip would, would have been work. one or of detour. the reasons there why. There were a bunch of them in this yeah. genre. You want it to be passive and delightful, not incessant well, and annoying. Well, AR is really right. there is when it'll work. Exactly. Right. Um, and then the second project uh, I had left at this time but w- or was helping on early prototyping was a game called Ingress, which is still live today and right. enormously popular, actually. Um, and uh, and then, you know, the, the rest is history. They continued to build uh, And Pokemon Go was the one they did after it. And why did you leave there? Uh, so I started having reoccurring nightmares that I was going to wake up and be 55 and SVP of some product group at Google <laughs> and would have never, ever worked anywhere else except Google. It's a nightmare. <laughs> It's a recurring. Only in the sense that I loved working there, but I knew that I needed to see more business models, products, work with different types of entrepreneurs. Yeah. And so I really went for the 180. Um, you know, Larry and Sergey were not cults of personality. In fact, they tried to push decision making to the edges and mm-hmm. prop up other spokespeople. Um, the company was obviously quite large at that time. It was about 35,000. Um, and uh, I had never worked in hardware. So adding those three things together and looking for the 180 opportunity and Ended up being square. Mm-hmm. I'm curious when you got there if you felt like you were a Google product person through and through, or whether you sort of had different ideas about building product that you took with you when you became the, the head of product at Square. I definitely had uh, strong points of view on building product when I went to Square that was very much indoctrinated me by the Google system. Um, actually, I was originally hired at Square to be the director of risk. Um, it was about 20 people. Keith and Jack hired me. And they wanted someone who had never done risk before because they wanted someone who would treat risk like a product. Uh, and if you know anything about payments companies, you know risk is, is really foundational. That's the critical part of that business. Um, well, it turns out I, I get there. I, I said yes, by the way. I said, okay, I'll take this job. I have no idea what this means, yeah. but I'll figure it out. And not even two weeks had passed, and the company launched some product or another. And everyone came back in the next day. I was like, well, what should we build? 
I was like, I don't know, what's next on the roadmap? And they're like, oh, there isn't really a roadmap. Oh. Um, and so I sent this long letter to Jack, which unfortunately I don't have the email because it was on my square email. I've always wanted to get it back about, hey, you know, I'm the new girl here. Don't want to step on any toes. But here's like six or seven things I would do differently as we think about building out this product engine across mm-hmm. engineering design and the PM function. And he just wrote back, congratulations, you're our head of product. <laughs> oh, wow. And now we understand Twitter. <laughs> Thank you for that little insight. Oh, my God. Why do that utterly rings true? That like rings beyond true. It it but, sounds familiar, but it's, it's I think it's also a, a great story about recognizing talent in the workplace and sort of handing the reins to the people who are kind of already starting to do it anyway. Billions from exasters and have no clue. Okay, all right. But, I'm good. Square Square runs like a well oiled no, machine. It, does, it did yeah. then too. Yeah, it I did. Mean, yes, and this mostly because women are in charge. In any case, <laughs> um, so. Uh, so so you were so we're doing that and and you decided what what did you like about that about Square itself I mean because obviously it's getting it's actually getting quite a bit of traction now especially it's doing great yeah um, you know what I really appreciated about Square at the time and subsequently it's I think been a, a real advantage for them is their focus and emphasis on design mm-hmm. in my you know however many seven plus years at Google I met one designer I didn't really even appreciate that it was a function that was core to product you know. building that yep. was not how Larry and Sergey and Marissa to some extent thought really hard about building products um, and so so, you know, obviously Jack brings that perspective and that priority, and that was really very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Right. That's like what I wanted to get at with this question of whether you consider yourself a Google product person, because when I think Google product, I think sort of testing the 96 shades of blue on the homepage and just this incredibly data-driven approach. So I wonder what it was like to land at Square where there is this vision of everything must or be beautiful and clean. That yeah, Because that's where he gets his inspiration. From. Yeah, I mean, I truly walked away with a hybrid view of the benefits and pitfalls of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe strongly in data and leveraging data to build better products, but I do think... Um, you, you can't ignore intuition, mm-hmm. um, and that's really where the design thinking comes in. Right. So then you were there, and and why did you leave there? Because you're going to this is venture capital is next. Yes. Um, so John Dor was on my board at Google, mm-hmm. and Mary Meeker was on my board at Square, mm-hmm. and I knew both in uh, those board functions while I was at the respective companies. Really, really liked both, admired both, mm-hmm. um, and spent a lot of time with Mary in my role at Square. Uh, people I don't think fully appreciate just how. Um, product-oriented she is as an investor, which is surprising given she has a banker background. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was extremely helpful to me. Oh, yeah. She's she's, she's great. So um, I had been chatting with the two of them, and then a couple other Kleiner partners reached out and said, hey, you know, we have this open partner role on the early-stage team. Have you ever thought about venture capital? I really hadn't. I had never seen a woman VC before Mary. I thought you had to be, like, a member of the AARP to be a VC. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just started talking with them and was really attracted to the idea of getting to see a horizontal view across a lot of different products and entrepreneurs and businesses that I hadn't had when I was just focusing on maps or just focusing on payments. Well, speaking of the elderly and also male, essentially, did you have any worries about that, obviously? And this was post or pre-Ellen? Interesting story. I had signed um, my offer letter from Kleiner, mm-hmm. and uh, the Ellen Powell trial or lawsuit uh, was announced the next day. Oh, nice. Well done. And how did you feel about that? They all called me <laughs> to see to see how I felt about that. Uh-huh. Um, and so I probably went one more layer on references and talking to some people. And Aileen was really helpful in that Aileen capacity. Lee. Aileen Lee at Cowboy. Um, she'd previously been at Kleiner. And, um, you know, decided it was worth 
it was worth trying myself. And but why venture capital? Just because you wanted to get across all that you that you didn't want to stay in an operating. Because a lot of people want to stay in operating roles versus. A lot of people in venture haven't done operating roles. Right. It was truly so that I could see a bunch of different products and businesses. Um, I had felt like when I was at Google, I was really deep in that bubble. I mm-hmm. mean, if you're in Google, especially early days, you thought the world revolved around Google. Mm-hmm. And then at Square, I was working, honestly, 18, 19-hour days, and all I thought about were payments. So the opportunity to stick my head up and learn, frankly, at scale for my job was really exciting. So how do you go from a place where you're building products to all of a sudden needing to get caught up to speed on many business models that you haven't uh, right. run across before? I'm still doing it, quite frankly. Um, I learn every day. Every meeting I have um, is an education. Um, and it's really through meeting other people and talking with folks. I mean, one of the most humbling pieces about being a VC is that it is your job to be the student. I mean, inevitably, the person sitting across from you um, knows a lot more about their market and their business and their product than I ever will. I, I say, unless they're building something in maps, there's no question that they know more specifically about their their business than I do. Um, and then to pass judgment and, and know that you're often wrong. Um, but that ability to be a student as a job is really exciting. If you're someone who's intellectually curious, that context switching is awesome. Did it matter that people don't look like you, essentially? I mean, when getting back to the older male white demographic, really, pretty much. That was why I had never thought about venture capital beforehand, mm-hmm. but Not my... you need. You can have mentors who are men or anyone who, you, you know. You definitely can. And I've, frankly, I'd only ever worked for men mm-hmm. um, and had wonderful bosses and mentors in my time at, at Google and Square. Um, but Mary is a woman, obviously, and mm-hmm. hugely inspiring uh, to me and was a critical part of my going into venture capital in the first place. Mm-hmm. What were your worries about it then? Just that they're, you wouldn't be listened to or that they're just... It wasn't anything specific to my gender. It was that I didn't know what the job actually entailed. And I think mm-hmm. from the outside, it is hard to, to say. What, you're VC, Tuesday, 9 a.m., what are you doing? Right. Um, and you just have to sort of figure Golf. that out. Golf. I've never gone golfing, <laughs> not once. I, my understanding of it is that it's a, it's a lot of uh, meetings and it's a lot of listening. And then 99 times out of 100, uh, you say, thank you, this was great. We can't actually give you money, but let us know if we can be helpful. Is that most? That's most of the meetings, right? That is like reporting. <laughs> yeah, except that reporters are never helpful. <laughs> um, that's stupid. Yeah, <laughs> I think it depends on the person. Yeah. Um, and the anecdote I give is my husband is also a venture capitalist, but he's an introvert. So every meeting for him is extremely taxing, um, and so he probably does max three a day. And the rest of the time, he is reading and then synthesizing a point of view by writing, which ends up being top of funnel for deal flow for him. I'm the opposite. I'm probably doing 12 to 14 meetings a day, and it's because I love meeting people and talking to people, and I'm a social animal. And that's how I learn about new things versus all of the reading and writing that he's doing. So I actually think it depends on the individual. 12 to 14 meetings a day is so many meetings. Are there actually like 14 interesting people a day to meet uh, around this town or or world? (laughs) There's a never-ending list of interesting people to chat with, but it's also quick calls for recruiting, trying to close a candidate for a portfolio company. I mean, it can be any different things, doing a diligence call with someone in some obscure industry because the company you're looking at happens to provide their SaaS solution, you know. Um, so just to, it just depends. And then, you, so you were at Kleiner. Yep. And then you moved to Spark. That's what, right. What, how many long were you at Kleiner? I was at Kleiner for three and a half years-ish, mm-hmm. something like that. And you were one of those, they had different levels of partners. Were you in Mary's group there? 
I was uh, one of the partners that was split between the venture and the growth fund. So right. Mary runs um, Kleiner's growth efforts, mm-hmm. and I was sort of three quarters early stage, one quarter late stage. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to move to Stoke Park because? Uh, actually, so we, my husband and I moved to London for a year. I was with mm-hmm. Kleiner when we moved to London. He moved um, so that he could get GV's investing efforts off of the ground there. Mm-hmm. And this is Google Ventures. Ha- this is Google Ventures, that's right. And um, halfway through the year, I just decided that when I moved back was going to be a really clean time to do something new. Mm-hmm. And so I told the uh, Kleiner team that I was thinking about doing something different. Um, I had an idea for something that I wanted to do that I still at some point want to do. Uh, a company. Not a company, actually, a different type of funding vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had met my now partner, Jeremy Phillips, on Sparks Growth Fund um, six months before that. And we had been chatting, and he just kept calling and ringing. He was very persistent. And then I had known Bijan for some mm-hmm. period of time. Sabat, Bijan. Sabat. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just slowly but surely more of the Spark partners kept reaching out and we spent more time. And then after 15 months, I actually decided to join them. Um, but it was a very long process for me to get there because I had not been thinking about going to another firm. I'd actually told Kleiner I wasn't going to another right, firm. Right. And, uh, you know, a lot of firms are looking for experienced women entrepreneurs to bring in, which is harder. Um, do you have any idea why that is? I don't want to focus too much on the women thing, but it's true. You're one of the few women venture capitalists of any That's right. high profile. Um, there's not a lot of women general partners. I think the number is something like 6 to 7% yeah. of all GPs um, are women. So it's a very, very small group. Um, I think that there's a lot of reasons. The one that sort of speaks to me most intimately is the you, you can't be what you can't see mm-hmm. um, meme, because that's truly why I got into venture capital, is I saw Mary, and she was awesome, and she was helpful, and um, I loved working with her both as a board member and as a partner, and um, that was really the inspiration for making the jump for me. So to the extent mm-hmm. that there's more women there, more women will see women who could um, you know, potentially be them in a few years. And I think it's already sort of in the in the proof. Uh, we've just recently hired another woman on my team. Um, I'm not saying that my partners wouldn't have hired her if I hadn't been here, but I don't know that she would have wanted to join an all-male right. group. Right, because it's off-putting in some way. Um, and since then, you've been investing in... Um We'll talk more about that issue in a little bit, but you've been investing in Coinbase, Slack, and also Niantic, where you work. Can you talk about your theories, and then in the next section, we're going to talk about where things where, where things are going. Sure. So um, Jeremy Phillips and I oversee Sparks um, Growth Funds. So we have uh, two funds. We have a billion dollars under management, and we're trying to build something a little bit different, which is to say we are trying to build the most collaborative fund possible. Um, Jeremy originally started the fund three years ago after Spark having a long history in early stage venture investing. But he comes off of an entire career of operating. So he's never been an investor before. He was Rupert Murdoch's right-hand guy at News Corp. He started a company and took it public in Australia. Um, He's a character also. He's a wonderful character. Um, And so I think the fact that we have two people who, by and large, have been operators for the majority of their career and are new to investing gives us the opportunity to try and evaluate how we would build our own practice from scratch, not having done this before, which is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So um, we look at every deal together. Um, we, if anybody on the team, we have four more junior folks on the team, meets a company they think is interesting, we all meet on the second meeting. We all spend time, we all do diligence, we all call customers, um, and we come to a shared point of view. And all the way down to the term sheet, we don't put a name on the term sheet for a board seat. 
And this is different. This doesn't sound revolutionary, I know, but this is different than how firms typically operate. More often than not, it's individuals coming together on Monday morning, pounding the table for a deal that they want to do, and then going off their own separate ways for the rest of the week. Yeah, you eat what you kill. Um, and so we're trying to really invert that model completely. So all of the companies that you've that you've listed, I'm an investor in, and Jeremy's an investor in as well. They're on both of our bios. We do work with both after the investment. Um, it's a great it's a great little model. It um, when you say it out loud, it seems like there'd be lots of benefits of collaborating. So I wonder why has it been rare up until this point? Probably a lot of ego. People coming. Probably, you think? (laughs) Uh, Probably a lot of ego and ownership uh, around deals and companies because that's how general partners have historically been compensated. It's, you know, what did you source? What did you close? What was your exit? And we could have gone down that path. I mean, that's the path of least resistance in many ways. But we kind of made this deal together that we were going to do things differently and every loss was going to be our loss and every win was going to be our win. And um, it's an experiment. It may, it may, totally backfire. Um, but for right now, for us, it's really working. I think a lot of venture firms talk as if they do that, but they absolutely do not practice That's it. exactly right. Yeah, I've been in so many rooms. And I, I, was, I made this joke just a second ago, but I literally was in a room where someone goes, we, we eat what we kill. I'm like, what? <laughs> and then get served by a butler. I'm sure entrepreneurs <laughs> love being referred to. No, I know, kill. I know, I know. So anyway, this is interesting. When we get back, we're here with Megan Quinn. She's a general partner at Spark Capital. She previously worked at Google Square and Kleiner Perkins. Uh, at Spark, her investments have included Coinbase, Slack, Nantic, and we're going to talk about those investments and where venture is going next on uh, Rico Deco with my co-host, Casey Newton. On Kara's birthday. <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by Airtable. Airtable is the all-in-one collaboration platform that is flexible enough to keep up with the most creative, fast-moving teams. Whether you're managing an editorial calendar, designing a video game, collecting user feedback, planning an event, or even recording a podcast, Airtable is for you. That's why companies ranging from Slack to Airbnb to Condé Nast Entertainment use Airtable to manage their work their way. Visit Airtable.com decode to get $50 in free credits today. We're here on Rico Decode with Megan Quinn, who is a venture capitalist at Spark Capital and also with my guest host, Casey Newton of The Verge. And we're talking venture capital and Megan's history, which is really fascinating. You've been to, you've worked at a lot of places. Um, but let's talk about your theories of investing right now. You've got, you're in, you, we'll get to Bitcoin in a minute, like, because Coinbase was one of the earlier companies. Uh, but you're in Slack, which is another fantastic company. How do you think about how you invest? What is your... And how much do you invest? Like, go go technical. Like, what's your... Sure. So our current fund uh, is $600 million, um, and we invest checks of 15 to $50 million. Um, mm-hmm. So we're not actually focusing on a specific ownership. It's more about these dollars and at work and the subsequent valuation. And we look at companies that are Series B all the way up to pre-IPO. So it's a very broad swath of the overall startup so landscape. So it can be anywhere and any investment. Yes. And we look at consumer, we look at enterprise, we look at companies in South America and Europe. Um, and we're really looking for category leaders. And that's how we talk about it. But so 600 million is the amount you have, correct? 600 million in fund two, 400 in fund one. So we've so a billion in small compared to SoftBank Vision Fund. I want to get to we're that. all small compared to SoftBank. <laughs> in fact, collectively, we're all small <laughs> compared to SoftBank's yeah, Vision we'll Fund. Yeah, we'll get to that. That it would happen. There. But so you, so you decide depending and you want a big chunk of these companies, right? It's not uh, as ownership focused as early stage 
stage investors tend yeah. to be because we're at the growth stage. Um, but uh, it's really important to us that we're not taking product market risk. Mm -hmm. So our venture partners are the ones who are investing <coughs> in entrepreneurs who have an idea on a napkin or a prototype. Um, we are willing to take on some type of risk, uh, but it can't be product market risk. It really needs to be more execution risk and overall market orientation risk. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So you put that. So what do you what, what do you look for? So say, what did you look for in Coinbase or Slack or? So we are looking for amazing entrepreneurs first and foremost. That's true across all stages. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking for compelling, differentiated products. That's a little bit higher of a priority for Spark, I think, than most venture firms. Mm -hmm. Um, we are looking for massive markets, if not massive today, the opportunity ahead, a perspective that we have about the world where the market will be huge. Um, and we're looking for uh, business fundamentals. So even if the company is an early Series B, we want to have an understanding of what that business model is and whether it can scale with cash as opposed to just adding more bodies. All right. So, so when, the, when you do that, everyone else is trying to do that pretty much. Like That's amazing true. entrepreneurs, great product. Huge market. Everyone's cash is green. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. So how do you differentiate yourself? Uh, I think Spark benefits, uh, Spark Growth benefits from having Spark Venture have this really warm, well-received reputation in the market. People like Spark. In fact, I always said about Spark before I joined is, oh, it's those nice guys back east. Aww. And now we're trying to change it to be those nice guys and some women. And also we're out here in San Francisco and New York. But um, people have a good halo, a good feeling around Spark as a firm. Um, we always say and we tell entrepreneurs, we're not going to hurt your business. And by the way, that sounds like a low bar, but it turns out like a lot of VCs can do more harm than good by injecting themselves at different times or places when not needed. Mm -hmm. um, so we tend to be founder driven based on where and how much we help. And it really does depend on the stage. We're obviously spending more times with the companies that are earlier in their life cycle than ones that are going to go public in the next year. Um, and we work super collaboratively. So people do see Spark, specifically Jeremy and I, as a unit that they are getting access to across the board versus you're going to only talk to this one person and never anybody else at the firm and you're that one person's guy or gal. Um, we really have a very collaborative approach. And how many investments are you, are you making a year or since you started? Like how much have you been investing? So we'll make anywhere between five and eight investments a year. It just depends on those check sizes. And we have a portfolio of about 22 companies right now, half of them where we've led um, and half of them where we've followed. So we like working with other growth funds. We work really closely with a number of growth funds that you would know, um, General Catalyst, IVP, Kleiner Perkins, so on and so forth. And, um, you know, as these round sizes get bigger and bigger, this is a group that you would have thought was actually more competitive than um, not is is tending to collaborate more because there's so much capital that's going into these companies. And and because there's so much competition with the money, even though it seems like maybe we're in a bit of a winter, there's still so much money washing around. I think it's a winter at the earlier stage and the seed stage. That's where the data has come out more recently. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not feel like winter. It feels no. like the surface of Mars right now on yeah. uh, on the late stage. Right. But, but Mars this, is hot, right? That's <laughs> it is very. That's what Sometimes I've been led to cold. believe. Sometimes, okay, oh, nice. surface of the sun. All right, yeah, that's hot. But I, but it seems like even just in the what five or six years that that you've been actively investing there has been this flood of money, particularly into the early stages. And I've read a lot about how the, the venture capital industry seems to be changing. There are a lot of questions about its future. Do you feel like you've seen a lot of change in VC since you joined, uh, at, at least as far as you know the, the amount of money available and like the leverage that might give you? 
You know, I've been doing this for, let's call it five years. I don't know if that's exactly the amount of time. And that's still considered pretty early to the industry. So um, the uh, the other folks who've been doing this longer like to remind me there used to be a time when VCs had the power and they were the ones selecting oh, the entrepreneurs. And it was this, you know, summer and glory of VC opportunity. And now, you know, it's the entrepreneurs have all the power. We're all competing desperately to show them how- Imagine much, lawyers speaking like this. Anyway, sorry. How much value we can add. Kind of like lawyers. Um, but uh, don't, that's so offensive. No, but you know what I mean. It's like they're not the most critical. If you, had a, I always have a test. If you have to shoot everyone in the room except that who is left. Wait, you not- spend that much time thinking about who in the room to shoot? <laughs> hey, everything brought- makes so much more sense now. I brought you the cookies. So. I know, not you. I wouldn't shoot you. But who, you know, in 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 anything, you if you had to shoot everyone in a room, the entrepreneur was the one, the last person you shoot. Right. Right. So. That's all. They're the one that's building the future. But there is a stack rank. You could you could easily <laughs> just try that. Just borrow it. Borrow it anytime. You can do that with companies. You're always <laughs> free to imagine who you would murder, Megan. If you take one thing away from this recording session today, <laughs> no, it works. Think about it. A company. We could do it here. I, I get. The, I think I get the metaphor. Right, in any yeah. case, so so you so the, the, the venture capital is in charge. But you you say you're not thinking like that. You're thinking entrepreneur based, correct? Right. Right, so that they're the they're at the center of the of the thing. So, what do you contribute? What are you? And then I want to talk about some specific companies. It depends on the stage, um, yeah. in terms of how involved we are. Um, but it's everything from recruiting. So, I am an active recruiter uh, for the portfolio companies that want and need my recruiting assistance. I close candidates. I'm actually going right from here to close a VP of product candidate for a company, um, and I'm sourcing candidates. And I'm an active um, customer closer. So, I, I joke with a couple of the companies that we work with that I'm their best performing AE account executive mm-hmm. um, in terms of sourcing different uh, business opportunities for them. Because again, I get to interact with a lot of different people in a lot of different companies and there's interesting synergies all across the place, even if they're in different markets and so on and so forth. So you're trying to poach from Google or wherever or somewhere else or not? how do you do that recruiting part? Oh yes, I've been, I've been gone from Google for a long time so it feels like open season, I can definitely. But how do you, what do you look for when you're thinking of that, when you're bringing someone to a startup? Because big companies are starting to have more power now. They have where all the money is now. Absolutely. Um, you're looking for people who want to go someplace where they believe that they can change the trajectory of the company. So I actually completely disagree with the Sheryl Sandberg model of if you're offered a seat on a rocket ship, just get on, don't ask which seat. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's a nice soundbite. And, and obviously, it's worked well for some people. The, the counter I have to candidates when I'm talking to them is, wouldn't it be more interesting to go to a place that you know it's not going to do as well if you weren't there? Because that means you're going to have ability to add value. Push a button on that rock. Exactly, exactly. Um, have control, really, really feel like you're contributing. So when you think about, th- when you're doing that, when you're trying to get people to do it, how difficult is it now to get people to go to startups? Is it, is it I would think it would be a challenge right now. For, it's for not. It doesn't feel any more difficult now than any other time. But I will say, as an anecdote, I'm on the board of a company in North Carolina um, called Pendo, and we put down in our investment risk. Is it? What do they do? Um, they do. That's uh, a uh, product experience platform for enterprise companies. So they do um, analytics, guides, walkthroughs, NPS for B2B software. Mm-hmm. Um, and we put in our investment memo. We write a long memo that goes along with every investment. And there's a risk section. What do we think are the things that could really be a downfall here. And we put for Pendo recruiting because it's in Raleigh, North Carolina. We don't really know Raleigh. We don't have a network in Raleigh. Um, and it felt like it could be hard to get really great people to go there. Of all of our portfolio companies, all 22, they have the easiest time recruiting. They are picking people out of the Bay Area, Chicago, New York, all folks that want to move down there, have some land, have a family. Um, it's been interesting to watch. Hmm. That's 
interesting. And then when you when you're when you're on the product side with customers, what do you what is what are the key things you do as a venture capitalist? I like to help more on setting up a product building organization. Like it's not going to be helpful if I'm going in and saying, "Hey, not that color blue, this color blue." Or like, "Have you thought about rounding the edge here versus keeping it, you know, that's not useful to the company." But helping them think through how they can create an organization that builds products across engineering, design and product. And that means everything from let's talk about the cadence of product reviews, what does a roadmap look like, how do we measure our success? Um, these things sound very fundamental, but um, there's a surprising lack of them, in, often in the earlier stage companies. Mm-hmm. And and how much room is there to invest in the consumer space right now, in yeah. particular? And I know you're looking sort Category. of across all spaces, but I feel like conventional wisdom right now in venture capital is that consumer is is really slow and boring. Is that's my perspective also as a reporter? Uh, but maybe you're seeing really interesting things recently that just haven't bubbled up yet. So, so I think that. Um, you know, where we've seen a lot of interesting things on the consumer side have been these fully integrated direct-to-consumer brands. Um, so we have a thesis. It's not particularly unique to us. In fact, Kirsten has built a whole practice around it. Mm-hmm. That the internet Kirsten is, Green. Right. Kirsten Green at Forerunner. Mm-hmm. Um, that the internet has changed the game as it relates to building um, consumer products and accessing consumers. You no longer need to have enormous ad budgets. You don't have to do deals to get your, right. your product on the shelf. Um, that the internet has really leveled the playing field. And that for the first time, word of mouth is really a a foundational customer acquisition channel. You can actually count on it and you can measure it. Um, So we have met in the last year, I had someone on my team look at this, 57 different fully integrated direct-to-consumer brands. So everything, I'm not going to say the ones that we met with, but all of the ones you could think of. So of the Pelotons and Allbirds and Hubbles and so on and so forth. Um, And we do think that there's really interesting investment opportunities there. We have some caveats to that. Uh, We think price matters there more than than most um, places of of software investing. Um, And we also think that, you know, and, and our unique perspective is that it's not enough just to have a brand. You actually have to have a community as well. And that community has to be organic. It has to be um, uh, customer love that en- ends up manifesting itself in a conversation with the company that is authentic, um, which is to say, you know, if it's something, it's, if it's a website where you just go here, you input your credit card, and then you get some XYZ thing in the mail, even if it's an amazing, beautiful brand, we have a hard time believing that's a billion-dollar company. But if you've organically built a community of people who tell their friends and acts as sales representatives for you and are actually giving you product feedback and have this exchange and dialogue with that customer base, that has a tremendous opportunity to move into adjacent product lines and become a really, really big business. So Jazz, give an example. Glossier is a mm-hmm. great example. Um, so Emily built up a website into the gloss for seven, eight years, focused on product reviews in the in the beauty space and skincare space, and then took that community and built the products that they were asking for. It's doing phenomenally well. They have, you know, a portfolio of products that they sell in the skincare space. Um, and that community, in turn, gives back. They tell people it's part of the engine of their growth and also help them develop new products down the line. And does every community product have to be thinking like this? Or can there just be a transactional, I want this? And I think that you can totally have interesting businesses that are purely transactional. Um, but I think that there's a cap on how big they can get. And therefore, from an investment perspective, it's a better investment for an early stage investor than a late stage investor who needs to see a three to five X on that return. So what do you think is interesting right now? What t- topic areas? It's my least favorite question. It's like <laughs> it's like journalists being asked, uh, so what are you working on these days? <laughs> AI. 
robotics automate? I can answer your question. You want to answer? Yeah, I can. That's all no good. Uh, so the, at, at the growth stage, it's a little bit different than venture stage, right? Because there is a finite pool of companies for us to invest in. It's not just tons of people with a napkin idea or mm-hmm. in academia working on some interesting piece of tech. The companies that we're being we're investing in and looking at have, by and large, already raised some sort of capital, have seen some sort of traction. Mm-hmm. So we we tend to not be thematic driven, we tend to be entrepreneur driven. That We see these entrepreneurs as the ones who have found success with a product, have taken it to market, are seeing product market love, and that's the opportunity for us to engage as late stage investors. And what are you looking for in those entrepreneurs? We're looking for um, definitely intellectual rigor, um, honesty, first and foremost, (laughs) I should say. Um, I look for self-awareness. I think it's really important as entrepreneurs mature up the the cycle in terms of company building that they have a good understanding of the things that they're really good at and the things where they need help, where they need to either leverage their board or bring in executives. Um, We look for people who are intellectually curious. Um, So yes, you're focused on building your business, you're obsessed with your customer, but you don't have blinders on. You're interested in how the world works so you can see around corners before, before others can. Um, We're looking for people who are magnets for talent. Uh, Recruiting is one of the very most toughest parts of, uh, of building a company. Uh, It's a long, long list. So you don't you don't want to talk about many areas that you're interested in, but we should ask you about the blockchain because yeah. like at this exact moment in time, it's blockchain mania. Mania. People, I read today that people are uh, taking out mortgages to buy Bitcoin, so that feels like a healthy part of the cycle that <laughs> we're in now. Uh, but but you, but you you started with you with Coinbase. You do. How you many, know it's, pr- it's prohibited by the Vox Media ethics policy do to own Bitcoin. It? I bought it like when a long time ago. All right, don't and tell Jim Bankoff. Carrie, li- how did oh, you lose I was it? Say, okay. We could solve this. You could donate it to me. I'm not going to donate to you. But I don't. <laughs> After she baked is. you the cookies, I'm, I'm going to ask you about Coinbase. Cause I think yeah. that's where my account is. It might be there. I hope it's there. Well, let's get I, it wouldn't be lost though. Yes. It was there. Yeah. I, I don't. It's one of those companies because I did a story on them. Whenever they this was like five or seven. Yeah, it's been around for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get Jeremy, uh, involved right? with Jeremy. Coinbase? Um, we have known Coinbase um, for a number of years through our friends at Union Square Ventures. Right. Um, so Fred Wilson. Is this Jeremy Lair? This is Jer- which one? Who does Coinbase? Who's the CEO of Coinbase? Brian? Brian. Brian. Oh, I thought you were referring to my partner, Jeremy. No. Brian Armstrong is the CEO. Right. Okay. Um, and our friends at USV, frankly, even when I was at Kleiner, you know, Fred would ping and sort of nudge. And for a while there, you know, Bitcoin was like just kind of sailing along. It was not doing a lot. it up and down. It was up and down, but it wasn't up and down like it is now. No. Um, no. And, um, you know, we've always kept an eye on the market. But again, from a growth stage perspective, we need there to be a little bit more market maturity. Um, and then the company went out earlier this year uh, to raise a round of financing, and we ended up participating. And, you know, our thesis there was really simple. We think the toothpaste is out of the tube on cryptocurrencies, and we think the world needs a safe, well-lit place to transact. Mm-hmm. And that's what Coinbase offers. Yeah. Yep. And yep. what makes it safer than the Mount Goxes of the past? They've spent 18 months, two years, it's actually in a competitive advantage for them, um, working with regulators and security firms to be able to provide the safety and security around around that business. Right, and so it's them, it's Zappo, who, who, there's, a bu- there's a bunch of others, correct? Uh, 
lot, there's actually not a lot that are doing pure play what Coinbase is doing today. Not to say that there won't be, by the mm-hmm. way. I'm sure, I mean, you've oh, seen. there'll be hedge funds, yeah. there'll be everything. Well, Square Cash, right, you know, yeah. is launching some Bitcoin trading um, feature or functionality. So, um, but we just think that they're further enough ahead in the market and have built and established this really great brand. You know, analogy I'll give is Airbnb. Like, people were sleeping on each other's couches and renting rooms before Airbnb. But Airbnb provided that really yes, a safe, clean, approved, you know, you got feedback, it was a transaction, you felt good about it. Yep. Um, we think Coinbase is providing that type of experience for trading crypto. Do you have a strong point of view on what uh, cryptocurrencies are actually for? Is it a store of value? Is it a way to transact? Is it just going to be everything? Well, today it's speculative, 100%. Um, one of the folks on my team said he was liquidating his 401k to, to buy in, which made me pretty nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am optimistic that it will actually be uh, a tool for transacting once we reach some sort of steady state. I mean, obviously in a world where it's going up by $1,000 every couple hours, you don't want to go on overstock.com and use that to buy a mattress. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we can get to a place where it's steady state, um, I think there is real opportunity there. And what are you looking at? Are you looking a lot? Are all the venture capitalists all of a sudden gone crazy of crypt- with crypto? Or I think that started a few years ago on the yeah. early stage side. On the late stage side, um, we really feel like Coinbase is the bet um, mm-hmm. from you know our perspective. It, it being that clean, a bank, essentially a bank to figure it out. And it is kind of crazy. It is... It, it reminds me a little bit of early internet, mm-hmm. actually. In a lot of ways, people are talking about it. There was a lot of con people and... You know, and people got washed out pretty quickly, and then the people that came in later were the ones that seemed to benefit the most from it. Right, and and Coinbase is stuck to their knitting around safety and security, and really not. You know, they they haven't tripped over themselves to launch a bunch of different types of currencies. Right, they've been really careful and thoughtful about every new currency they bring to the platform. Um, they have been really thoughtful about being communicative with their customers. They've obviously had some performance issues um, due to all of the volatility and interest in the space. I mean, they they are really trying to build that you know that safe brand in the crypto. So, people are in crypto. What should they be thinking about or wanting to get? If you're someone wants to liquidate their four hundred one k, you're like, do not do. Please that. don't do that. Right. What would you say to people who are like looking at this? If you have a spare, what was the, what, what's today, $17,000? Something like that, yeah. Let's call it $17,000. If you have a spare $17,000 that you are fine seeing go to zero, like, okay, fine. That's, that's not the worst way to spend it. I don't think that cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin specifically is ever going to go to zero. But I think that if you're someone who's willing to have it go to zero, then you can ride out the stomach lurching of volatility that I think we're going to continue to see for a while. How long? Why? I think anyone who tells you they know how long this is going to last is a false prophet. Right. But where does it go, actually, cryptocurrency? Where does this actually become becoming a regular industry? Yeah, it, it, it stops being so volatile. It, it reaches a steady state and then ideally, aspirationally, moves into being a method of payment. Method of payment, absolutely. Now, Slack. Talk about Slack. You're also in that. I love Slack. So yes. I've invested in Slack right. twice. I invested in Slack at Kleiner. Mm-hmm. And then I invested in Slack, or Spark invested in Slack again. Um, uh, it's an amazing company. Um, at S- Spark, actually, we don't do any email internally. Mm-hmm. None. There's zero. All communication within the firm happens within Slack. All external emails get piped into Slack. Uh, it's truly the system of record for how we do business. And it's enabled us to build this firm, frankly, across multiple coasts and offices. So I'm obviously a, a huge, huge fan of Stewart's and the team that they're building there and the opportunity ahead. 
And what what do you worry about in terms of challenges? Obviously, he's had lots of offers to sell. There's competitors building one, Microsoft among the many. There's an opportunity for them to sell. I think Stuart is really focused on building a really big business. And so the biggest risks right now are really just around execution. Um, and that's around the, the nits and bolts of building a company and teams and building a product and um, closing customers, all things that they happen to be doing really well. I pause, not, not because um, I'm trying to think of something to hide, but because it's actually mm-hmm. really hard. If every day that goes by, Slack seems more and more inevitable. Right, right. Yeah. Right. I, I want to ask you about Niantic, mm-hmm. um, which you've, you have this long history with. Uh, they had some success with Ingress, not, and they had this amazing blockbuster success with Pokemon Go, and, and now they're working on... Uh, is it Harry Potter, the next one? Yeah, okay, so they have another huge Wizards IP. Unite. Oh, so that's right. probably going to be pretty big as well. Um, but there's this conventional wisdom that investing in game studios can be risky because it is so hits-driven, and if you don't maybe get the right license to the right IP, then next thing you know, uh, you, you don't have any more hits. So right. did you approach that as a games business, or are they selling something else over there? I did not have something else. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's like, oh, we're selling over well, there. Well, you know, yeah. we're, a, we're a platform company for yeah, human communication yep, or something. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Um, I mean, the, the business in the company today is extraordinary. I mean, even though we all don't talk about Pokemon, we don't talk about Pokemon Go every hour, it's still an incredible business. Um, the team over there is extraordinary. It's a team I know really, really well. And we believe that they have the opportunity to build an iconic company at the intersection of AR, which is obviously white hot as a trend, Mm -hmm. and real-world physical location. So they are not just trying to build AR experiences for your you know, sitting on the couch or around the table or even ways to collaborate in the office. They want to tie AR to the real world and build at that intersection at that seam. And today that's all been games, and that's great, um, but I don't think that that's the end-all and be-all for their opportunity ahead. So there will be maybe the return of field trip in some form or some spiritual successor. We'll see. We'll see how much influence and impact I can have. But let me talk more more about AR because that's something Apple's obviously deeply engaged and in, Google it seemed, and Google. Um, probably Apple more than uh, having recently spent a lot of time with their executives. AR seems to be a top of mind at that company for sure. Um, where does that go? Talk about what that means when you're thinking about that, because it's not just games. It's ev- it's everything, really. It's truly everything. And I think that we've done a little bit of a reset in the venture capital market as it relates to VR and AR. Right. Because you'll recall two years ago, and, and VR, we VR. led this Series A in Oculus, and mm-hmm. we were thrilled with the team and the outcome, and that's wonderful. But the whole industry at large was like VR, 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 VR. And I think that we realized, uh, and we as a collective we, that we really needed a bridge technology to get there, mm-hmm. that we weren't going to all be walking around with... Um, that's what I call the Google thing, the sweatpants for your face, like whatever that, the daydream or whatever thing is. Like, we're not going to be walking around with that anytime yeah. soon. Like, right. over my dead body am I wearing that, You're frankly. You're never going to be. Probably. It's a dream of a nerdy white guy in it, Silicon Valley. You said it, not me. Yeah, okay. Um, but we needed a bridge technology, and I think AR is that bridge technology because it's accessible on all... It's not even a bridge technology. I wouldn't even call it that because I don't think... You're, I think you're right. People are not going to be operating like that. There will be a, There'll be something, but not prone necessarily or sit or sitting. The reason I call it a bridge technology today is because it's heavily dependent on mobile devices, which mm-hmm. everyone's got that computer in their pocket. I think where it moves closer to the VR dream versus the AR dream is when we have a new fangled 
you know, uh, some sort of eye application. Whether Snapchat glasses, I don't think were it. And I think, frankly, that was a bit overhyped as being their big AR play or whatever it was. They that too now. <laughs> but I do think that there's going to be some sort of wearable um, on our face that will project AR into our field of view. And then at that point, is it AR? Is it VR? It's kind of a blend. Mm-hmm. Um, but the AR that we see developing today, um, you know, I think it's early uh, with the launch of AR Kit and uh, AROS, or what are they both calling their two things? They sound the same. Yeah, I don't remember what Google's is called. I don't know. I call um, it MR, mixed reality. Mixed reality, there we go. Um, so I think the, the products and services that we're seeing developed so far, pretty early, it's a lot of Pokemon Go knockoffs um, and cute tools. I'm going to measure how big this thing is with a ruler that's not really here, you know, that kind of right. thing. Uh, but whenever these new technologies launch, specifically, frankly, on the iOS platform, it usually takes like 12 to 18 I months. I see mapping. Before interesting things Telling happen. Telling you where to go in right. front of your face. Like this is a little path in front of you. Like, the, this walk. is my problem. Every time I visit New York, I get out from the subway and I just have to walk in four different directions until I guess the right one. No, but there's going to be right. pointers. Yeah. And this is, and then John Hankey has talked about this publicly quite a bit um, in terms of AR mapping being the next generation of, of cartography. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of companies that are early stage that are building at that, at that, with that thesis mm-hmm. at heart. No, Do you no. think like the, whatever the next glasses turn out to be, is that likelier to come from a tech giant or a startup? A tech giant, um, but I say that with my growth stage hat on, just in terms of the capital required um, for that type of hardware. Um, So that might be a a pessimistic view. If you talk to my venture partners, they would absolutely tell you it's going to come from some cool new upstart. Um, But that's I'm with you on that one. All right, we're here with Megan Quinn. She's a general partner at Spark Capital. We're talking about a lot of fascinating things. We just were talking about uh, AR and VR and all the R's. Um, She's previously worked at Google Square and Kleiner Perkins. And when we get back, we're going to talk about where things are going more so and what's going to be looking out longer than just a few years. This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the customer data platform for every screen. And I'm here with co-founder and CEO Michael Katz. So Mike, you recently announced a major funding with the intent of bringing relationship marketing, also known as CRM, uh, into the multi-screen era. So what's the future of CRM? Yeah, so customers are engaging with brands across more devices than ever. Brands need to create a consistent and personalized experience across these devices. And so it starts with having a data platform that was built to ingest data from anywhere, create a unified view of the customer, and then in real time sync that data out to all the different systems that that business uses to effectively run and grow their company. Mm-hmm. So, because things have gotten real confusing, that there's so many da- devices and ways and data platforms that people come in on. Yeah, exactly. When it was just a website, you knew everything that a customer was doing digitally. Now, they may start on their phone, they may go to the website using their laptop. They, If certain brands have an app on, say, Apple TV, they may engage there. They may download the app to the mobile phone and complete the transaction or go to the store. So there's oftentimes five or six different systems involved. Where can we learn more about what you're doing? Go to www.mparticle.com or follow us on Twitter at mparticles with an S. I also want to tell you about Two Embarrassed Ask, my other podcast, which I host with Lauren Good from The Verge. I'm in line at the airport. Yes, as usual, because you do not Waiting have in line. the pre-screening things that I do. Wearing mismatched socks. <laughs> I have to take my darn shoes off. Every Friday, we answer your questions about consumer tech. Lauren... Obviously, what did we talk about this week? Wait, why do I have to take my laptops out? 
Anyway, we're talking about traveling with Karen Seidman-Becker. She's the CEO of Clear. Karen is actually here with me right now. She's trying to convince me that I should be using Clear. Karen, what did we talk about on this week's podcast? We talked about biometrics, how they're going mainstream, how they speed you through the airport, sports stadiums, and so much more in the future. Fingerprints, iris image, face, and much, much more. Gate? Gate? Gate with an I. With an I. DNA, biometrics. Voice. Is the future people knowing your gait and identifying that by how you walk? And how you can streamline lots of different things using technology. Secure, frictionless experience. You know people spend on average two years of their life waiting, waiting in lines. Wow. Lauren, you are wasting two years of your life. You're going to be so bummed but think one of day. All the tweeting I'll get to do. <laughs> Snapchat, Instagram story. Everyone follow my story from the airport. I'm waiting in line. Two years. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. It was a great discussion. We hope you'll go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here with Megan Quinn in the red chair. She's a general partner at Spark Capital, and she previously worked at Google, Square, Kleiner Perkins. And we're also here with Casey Newton from The Verge. He's practicing being a podcaster. How's it going? I think it's going really well. I'm getting great good. feedback. <laughs> in any case, Megan, you can you can comment on that if you feel like it. But we were just talking about a- AR and VR. What are some of the things you think when you look at the venture? We were talking about changes in how you're doing more collaborative, but there's been a lot of big changes lately um, in terms of money washing in. Mm-hmm. This tax reform, there's probably going to be m- more money washing in the system. You have SoftBank Vision Fund, as we discussed. What do you think the big trends in venture capital are? What do you What do you think are the changes? Because it's one area that really is sort of artisanal in a lot of ways, if you think about it. Yes, I think there was this hope a couple of years ago that there would be this great reset, right? Everyone was calling bubble all the time, and yeah. and um, there's been a flood of capital. It's all going to go away. There's going to be this great reset, and we're going to get to enjoy normal valuations again. And I just personally don't believe, having not done this for a limited time, but five years, mm-hmm. um, that that is ever going to happen. I think that the capital is more or less here to stay, right. um, of course, barring some massive global economic collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, but the folks like Fidelity, who sort of walked away for a little bit, are back in full force. Of course, you have... Um, various uh, new uh, vehicles like the SoftBank Vision Fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the sovereign wealth funds from all parts of the planet who are looking for places where they can um, put capital with potential great upside. So uh, it seems across, especially for me at the growth fund where I focus, that there's a never-ending supply of, of money bags. Mm-hmm. And so you, what does that do to the venture firm? Because they always also talk about how things are going to change. And this, We are the new venture firm, and it looks like the same venture firm. I actually think that there's a flight then to quality because it does turn out that if you pick good board members, they can be helpful to you. Mm-hmm. That the, the money may be all green, but the advice is not all good. Um, and so I do think that even when you've got folks like SoftBank, and, and I know that team there, they're great, but there's only so much they can do when they have an enormous portfolio and are putting you know, $100, $300, $500 million to work across a lot of different companies. Um, I think that entrepreneurs then start to focus in on, well, if I can get money from anywhere, why don't I get it from the very best people? Right. So, the, the, And what does that then entail? It's just just having a thing, right? Having a, like being nice or being known as killers or what? No, being known as useful. useful. Like, the days of being known as a killer to me, I think is is more or less over in a world where entrepreneurs get to pick from a buffet of different you know funding options. Mm-hmm. I think someone who can come in and be a true partner and add value, and by the way, that adding value might not be product feedback. It might be customers. It might be recruiting. It might just be someone to walk that you trust with on the entrepreneurial journey, quote mm-hmm. unquote, as they say. Um, but I think that that's hard to get, you know, from a bank. 
Right. Right. I have I have a, uh, a buddy who says that his v- vision of the future of venture capital is that Amazon becomes a bank and just uh, gives out loans and free AWS credits, yeah. and like that becomes the entire yes. seed stage economy in VC. They already do give out free AWS credits. Right. So throw in a bank, and then then, yeah. then that's yeah, like the, the biggest bank. VC firm, maybe. They should be a bank. That's a great idea. I like that yep, idea. Free idea. Jeff, Jeff, if you're listening, yeah. like, I can connect you. <laughs> so let's talk about that idea of what changes. Now, one of the things that's been rocking Silicon Valley and the whole country is sexual harassment issues. And this has got to be something you're thinking about, not just as a venture capitalist, but also these startups and stuff like that, which are largely unfettered in their behaviors. Um, you know, one of the excuses at Uber that was using, which I think is somewhat lame, is that they were too busy building everything so big that they couldn't possibly stop people from sexually harassing people or creating an atmosphere of sexism. How do you look at that? Because you have to be thinking about that because you want to build sustainable companies for the long term, presumably. I mean, absolutely. And I'll add, I'm thinking about it a lot as a woman, period, mm-hmm. um, who have friends who've had horrible experiences um, and family members who've had horrible experiences. So it's something that really uh, is important to me. Um, you know, there's only so much diligence you can do, which we definitely do um, before we invest. Uh, we have the benefit at being growth stage that there's also other folks who've done diligence, presumably. So mm-hmm. um, we have we are able to come to... Or not presumably. Well, but we, t- we ask now. Mm-hmm. Now we're asking. Mm-hmm. Um, so we come to a deeper 360 view of an entrepreneur. And then we actually push our companies to do a series of things. So uh, have um, sexual harassment training. Um, you're never too young as so a company to do that. List. It's on the list. Exactly. Um, We want to see, uh, and this is something that I'm seeing across boards, we want to see those employee surveys, not once a year at some sort of annual roundup. I want to see it in every single board deck. What are people worried about? What do they think is going well? And so there's a lot of almost like prototype testing of employee sentiment that we want to see bubbled up at the board level, which even historically, if it was being done, board members may not have cared, but it's something that we really pay attention to now. Mm -hmm. And what what do you imagine solves the problem? Because there's been a lot of people talking about the various ways to do it. Obviously, a monoculture of men is a problem. Um, But where do you think it begins? Where do you think the real problem is from your perspective? I think it's top-down. And top-down, I don't necessarily mean within the company, the CEO. I mean top-down from uh, the elders of our industry, whether they're on the operating side or the investing side or the banking side or what have you. Um, So I think that, you know, one of the, the few good things about the shift that we're going through in Silicon Valley is that, you know, we're going to get the vermin out. Like, mm-hmm. there's never one cockroach. You and other journalists are doing fantastic work of running down these stories and these cases, and we need to exercise the bad actors from the industry so that entrepreneurs of all ages, ones that are just getting going, recognize, look, I don't want to be kicked out of my company or fired or even worse. Um, and they do that by looking up. And do you imagine when you're when you're thinking about this, because one of the things is that they don't have great HR functions. They don't have great... Um, I had a someone well-known, uh, someone was brought to a startup from a big company um, in charge of culture and people, whatever the heck they call it right now. It's yeah. HR, essentially. And I said, what, do you, what is your job? It's a much smaller startup, and they came from a big company, and they said, my job is stopping people from fucking each other. <laughs> really, I know they said that incredibly. And I was like, ha-ha, and they're like, no, really, it's a real problem. And in a, in, a, in the whole culture way is to try to get people from thinking of these startups as different than these fast-moving, you know, where they just say things off the top of their head or they don't know how to behave, which I think... They should know how to behave as adults, which is a whole different story about their upbringing. But in terms of cultures of companies that this is allowed. And I think Uber was a perfect example of that. It was sort of the quintessence of that kind of 
Yeah, I have, a couple, I have a couple of views. One, um, I believe in building out a management team earlier into a company's life cycle, right. probably than most VCs do. I agree. Um, I think that um, you can always up-level again if someone grows out of that role, but getting a group of people around a table who are adults, and again, I don't mean adults in terms of age, I mean in terms of maturity, mm-hmm. and that's a different thing. Um, but getting a group of people who are functional leads, mature, and can be good thought partners to those entrepreneurs um, is something that's really important to do not at, you know, employee number 500, but I'm talking like employee 20 mm-hmm. and employee 30. Um, so that's something that we definitely spend a lot of time with our portfolio companies doing. The second thing is I actually meet with the VPs of people or HR, or whatever the title is, separately and alone uh, on a regular basis. So we have coffee, we have lunch, and it's not a feedback session on the entrepreneur or some sort of tattletaling. It's just I want to get this person's candid, unvarnished, and confidential view on how things are going from a people perspective that I can't see from, you know, those board meeting decks, even if they are pulling their employees regularly and surfacing that data to the investors. Are they emboldened enough or given enough power? Because I often find they aren't. The HR people particularly are not. And they often serve as recruiting function versus a culture fund. Like recruiting is is top of mind at these startups. I don't know if it's my approach. I can't say exactly why, but people feel comfortable talking with me about that type of thing. And then what do you do? Uh, we coach the executive team in ways that we think to administer to that feedback. And that might be us directly doing things differently. That might be getting executive coaches involved. That might be changing people out of roles altogether, not at the CEO level, but in other functions where we think we need to up-level the person. Um, but it's useful to get that perspective. And I think, by the way, that is one of the most critical and difficult roles to hire at any company. 100%. How, how much, like, so uh, with everything that's been in the news, do you have a sense of how much actually is changing inside of companies? Does it feel like there has been uh, a sea change? It's hard for me to say how much has changed in the last six months within the companies. We've certainly, like I said, started doing new things in terms of, as Spark, asking for companies to go through this sort of training, me reaching out directly to all of our portfolio um, VPs of people. Um, I think that the trying to understand sort of the employee sentiment on a more regular basis has been there for longer than that. I don't know that it changes the day-to-day operations of companies, but it's certainly a top of mind for the entrepreneurs that we work with. Um, They really are horrified by the things they're reading. Now, I'm not saying that we've only invested in perfect angels. I'm sure that they all have their own challenges and problems. I believe that they're all ethical people, um, but they're all advocates for us in terms of of terms of changing the way that companies operate and the things that used to be acceptable. I think sometimes it's a CYA thing, you know, career ass more than anything. And in a lot of ways, um, it, it's what's interesting about a lot of the reaction is people assessing what they did, like a lot of men doing that, like maybe I did this wrong, maybe I did that. And it's usually the good men that are doing that, not right. the horrible men, which is always typical of that. Um, but it's also a that backlash of like, well, we can't make everybody bad. And and, and it, it's a really interesting time because you immediately move to the backlash versus the problem. In the first, That's my worry is that just like with the Ellen Pout things, everything went underground and then it came back again, essentially. Um, when that happened, everyone was like, oh, I'm not going to, you know, I forget there was, you know, we're going to Mike Pence these lunches and, and we're going to not let, oh, you've heard that expression? No. Some venture capitalists in the Valley talk Mike. about that. I'm going to Mike Pence a lunch, meaning there'll be another person at these lunches or... Oh, right, because they can't meet directly with with a woman. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, that that really (laughs) solves all the problems. Thanks, dude. You know what? It happened. We had a story at Recode after them. I'm not going to invest in women entrepreneurs. I don't want to... There can't be any confusion. And I was like, you can't 
control yourself. That couldn't be the option, um, which I think is interesting. So I wonder if it's going to, I mean, I do wonder if it's going to last or be sort of, let's wait till this one passes. I think we are in the early days. Um, as my partner says, there's never one cockroach. Yeah. And oh, no, there's plenty. This notion of open secrets, um, when people talk about that, there are a lot of open secrets that aren't yet in print. Mm-hmm. And um, what I think when people say open secrets is is the the, the um, sort of rumor mill around specific people or incidents or things um, that are hard to then translate into facts and then ultimately into a story. So I know it will take time, um, but I think we're still in the early days. I will say, you know, talk about like how you could accomplish real change. I hope some of these entrepreneurs are rethinking their holiday parties, right? Like we're in <laughs> holiday are. party season and you read they so are. many of these stories and holiday parties are this recurring feature where people drink to excess and yes. they do terrible things. Yes. Maybe think about your holiday party. Our holiday parties can be so boring because of my intervention. And so I think it's know. fantastic. Thank holiday you. parties should be boring. <laughs> it's like if no if the liquor. best night of your year is at your company holiday party, <laughs> get a new life. <laughs> I was taking pictures of alcohol at various Vox Media places. I'm like, oh, look, and I'm sending them to the executives. Look I, at this. Listen, I, I love to responsibly enjoy alcohol. I think yes. it's great that there will be less of it at our holiday yeah, it's party interesting. this year. So let's talk, let's finish up talking about sort of where Silicon Valley is because one of the other things is political issues, obviously, and, and you don't necessarily have to be political, but people are thinking about the role that tech plays in society at large. They're getting pilloried, you know, Facebook and the, for their behaviors during the Russia uh, investigations. Um but more than that, like what's their what's their stance on automation, on robotics, on job loss, on AI, and the responsibility on AI? Do you think it's part of and, and sexual harassment is part of that same thing as this growing up conceptual thing? And of course, being young and brash is part of the ethos here, which is almost Peter Pan like in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think you've seen the balance of power from an industry perspective, obviously shift from. New York and the East Coast to the Bay Area, um, and and that's come with banking to technology as technology continues to serve as not just the underpinning of the economy, but Mm -hmm. of how we all work and what we do in our free time and of culture in many different facets. Um, What I do think is changing, though, is this notion of it being young, brash men, Peter Pan people, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, When I look across our portfolio, there's not that many that would qualify in that statement. In fact, I think what with the average age of an entrepreneur these days is 38, 39. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that has been the MO for a long period of time. Um, but Silicon Valley has had to grow up. Um, and as the big tech companies, whether it's Amazon, Google, Facebook, whatever, have been forced to grow up in the eye of regulators and various other investigations, I think that that's pulled up the maturity in a lot of ways of startups, um, even in terms of how they operate on a day-to-day basis. Now, that's not across the board, and there's still a lot of bad actors. Um, But entrepreneurs look up to these folks aspirationally and want to, um, you know, build for the long term and recognize that building for the long term entails carrying yourself and operating in a certain point of view and with a certain um, amount of respect. Amen to that. Amen to that, really? Yeah. Okay. But when you think about the responsibility of tech, is more into it, is do you feel that tech understands that it should be part of the conversation going forward of people um, of this country? Because the political, you know, a lot of this has been a backlash to technology. It's been a backlash to the weaponization of, I wrote about it last right. week, the weaponization of social media, the uh, ability of people to, to um, these sexual harassment allegations are going wide because of social media in a, in a good way, in a lot of ways, because right. you can amplify, right. um, that you can't hide, like your open secrets, like you were talking about. Um, everything has with it is fraught with the, with the concept. And I do think these company, 
leaders are worried. I've been called recently this week by lots of CEOs at big companies saying, boy, we're really in trouble, aren't we? We're kind of thing. And I, so, so I think, do, do you think, what, where is Silicon Valley's responsibility in that, especially the big companies? I think they have a foundational role in the conversation um, writ large across the U.S. I think that what we're learning the hard way is that we don't just get to ha- be a member of that conversation when times are good and we like the guy in office. Mm-hmm. If not, if anything, frankly, we have even more of a responsibility to stand up uh, articulate our principles and actually, you know, act on those principles in times where we don't necessarily agree with the person in office or the way that things are trending. Mm-hmm. And I do start to see that there are folks, Aaron Levy's been, you know, outspoken, Sundar to a certain extent, Mark did his walk around the U.S. Like, mm-hmm. there have been different versions of that effort, um, but I think that this is all a part of a growing up and realizing that, you know, we have a voice at the table, we have an opportunity to be around the table, and we can't just do it if it's Obama or some other Democrat. Like, we need to engage and represent Americans, both the ones that work for us as our employees and those who we are building products for in in a thoughtful, real way. What about bringing tech elsewhere? Because this is a, you know, a theme that I'm very interested in, I, not just visiting them like Mark Zuckerberg does, but in more of a, you have a company in North Carolina, most venture capitalists really do fund here. They really, I mean, they, they have a myopic view. Yep. Absolutely. I remember Mark, Mark Andreessen once telling me he doesn't like to go beyond the Stanford Shopping Center, essentially. Right. Like that's where he likes to have lunch and that's where... I think it's completely changed. The war for talent in San Francisco um, in the Bay Area at large has forced companies to at least open second offices in what you might call second tier cities, you know, like the the Phoenixes of the world or the Waterloo's or Vancouver's and so on and so forth. And I think that that trend is only going to accelerate. You know, if you, if you actually ask me what are a prediction that you have for the future going out a couple more years? I think these fully distributed teams are the way that we are moving across the tech industry. So uh, I'm an investor in a company called Envision. It's about 400 people. Uh, it's a design platform. I would say it's based in, in New York City because the CEO lives in New York City. The entire group of 400 people is fully distributed around the world. And we used to say in venture capital, it wasn't that long ago because I was there, that oh, you, you all need to be in headquarters, you need to have that, that pressure of we're all right. building this together, we're on deadline together. And they have built an, a very meaningful business as a fully distributed team. And we are starting to see that trend accelerate across the rest of the portfolio. And it's usually the lack of talent or the ability to bring in talent because there's just only so many people that we can fit in these seven by seven square miles um, that forces these companies to do it. But then they realize that there's other benefits like they tap into new talent pools of universities. They get to move into ancillary businesses where there's a base there of some sort of industry that's interesting. They meet new customers that they didn't see before. Um, their employees are happier. I really believe that we now have a set of software tools, whether it's Slack or Zoom or Trello, what have you, that have enabled this fully distributed workforce to come to fruition in reality in the next few years. I I love that idea, but I have to say in practice, I spend so much of my time uh, with my conference calls dropping, you know, know, (laughs) the New York office, Wi-Fi is bad, so this call can't connect. Uh, And then also I think you wind up creating a lot of cultural problems for yourself when you're a distributed workforce and people feel really disconnected from one another. So, you know, I'm, I'm willing to believe we're going to see a lot more distributed workforces for all the reasons you just mentioned, but I think those businesses wind up having a lot of like really tough management work that they have to do that I think yeah. a lot aren't good at. There's yeah. certainly an amount of overhead, but even on employee engagement, and I'm going to pick on Envision again because I'm just coming out of a board meeting, so it's top of mind. But, um, you know, even Envision, they have the highest employee engagement across of our portfolio. Um, and this is because people collaborate across time zones, across countries, across teams. They don't have to get on an 
an elevator to go see someone else on this floor. Everyone feels instantly accessible at the end of their fingertips. Yeah, I would agree. I, we, if you, you know, you have to start a company like that too. I think, you know, Rico was started all things D. We were in my uh, my house, but not really. Everybody was somewhere else, which was I mean, so people are used to it. You have to sort of develop a workforce that's that's not used to a central location. It's a muscle. Yes, I agree yeah. that you have to develop, which is interesting. Um, okay, I'd like to finish up. Um, can you give some predictions? Well, this is the end of the year. What do you, do you have any big predictions? Something really crazy wild, and what's really overhyped for 2018? Or yeah, what's our time frame? Well, you can do 2018, 2025, 20, 2050. Um, well, I already made one, which is I do think that we're moving towards a world of more fully distributed workforces, and that's okay. enabled by technology and driven by talent and the war for talent. Um, in terms of the short term, like next year, for example, like I, I think next year will be a really pivotal year in self-driving cars, not to take a hard right, mm-hmm. no pun intended, mm-hmm. into a completely different I area. completely intended that pun, but go ahead. <laughs> But I think that, um, you know, instead of having one-off, two-off, three-off cars in different test cities, next year is really going to be the year where we see fleets um, in streets operating completely autonomously, picking up normals, not mm-hmm. not engineers. Um, and so I think it'll be a real learning year, um, not necessarily for tech, but for society at large. Are, are you involved in it? Are you invested in one? Uh, we were the lead investors in Cruise, so oh, okay. they sold to GM. Right. Um, we are not on the board any longer, but um, we obviously know that team More? really well. Are you looking at others? Uh, our venture stage team is definitely. Uh, again, we need to get a company to a certain stage before it makes sense for for a growth right, fund. So it, fleets of self-driving cars next year. All yes, right. which will change a lot of different things over a period of time, you know, car ownership, mm-hmm. uh, what it means to commute, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a short-term one. Um, you know, AI is is, is like the, the, the standard bearer for VCs these days. If you don't mention AI, you get kicked out of the club. So <laughs> I... Uh, but I will say, uh, uh, you know, applied AI is really what we're looking for. So super AI is a new one. There. Super AI. Yeah. What's super AI? Omnipresent yeah, someone, AI. Yeah, someone was just doing it's superer than the regular super one. Super AI. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, what we're looking for is applied AI, yeah. which is like, it's great that you've got a company that does AI. Like, uh-huh. We want to see actual material changes either to a customer or to an experience because yeah, of AI. I agree. I agree um, and so that's the thing that we're waiting for. We think we'll start to see that uh, next year. I just year. ran into someone, we may put it at the code conference, of someone who you taste some wines and they use AI to figure out your actual preferences of other wines. Doesn't it turn people don't actually have wine preferences? Like you yes, can get they like do. Oh, they, they do. do. Yes, according to AI. This is they a- do. So actually this brings me to another. We spend a bunch of times with various genome sequencing companies because the price of genome sequencing has obviously collapsed over the last five years. Um, and you can sequence your genome for everything from, you know, am I at risk to get breast cancer to um, what Wine is most appropriate for my palate. That's right. actually something exactly. we can we're going to have them at code. That's okay. I've changed my mind. Go ahead and do that at All right. code. All right. Okay. So way so long term. Lo- way long term. Uh, you'll be mayor of San Francisco. That's not long term, but go ahead. Oh, that's short term. <laughs> Um, you know, there's a lot that's changing. Uh, you know, I think on the on the VC industry side, I really do think that the fears around there's being so much money, you know, we're, how are we ever going to be able to invest and make returns is actually going to result in a flight back to quality, ironically enough. Um, I think some people are going to lose their shirts on ICOs and the ICOs mm-hmm. are going to become uh, not just regulated, but heavily regulated. Yeah. Um, I think uh, there'll be more cryptocurrencies that perform like Bitcoin. Uh, in, like 
and by perform, I don't mean the volatility, but I mean reach uh, reach the level where my grandfather's asking about it at Thanksgiving, um, and that it won't just be for speculative store of value, but actually for transactions. Right. Um, I don't know. What I, company, I last question for me, and then Casey may have one, company going public, because UDBCs have, need exits, don't you? That's right, we do. So Slack, is that the one? I can't come on our own portfolio, though. Okay, but who do you think is going public? In the next year? Mm-hmm. Um, I think Airbnb. I think I'm not an investor uh, anymore. I was a cleaner. Uh, I think Dropbox. Um, I don't think Uber. Um, oh, I gave you two. Spotify? If they don't get taken off the table. I, I'm not an investor in Spotify, and I have no proprietary knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been interesting to me that Google hasn't taken them off the table or Apple hasn't taken them they off the table. They have reasons. They all have reasons. But again, uh, you know, coming back to... Take the, them off the table. Sorry, that's, that's our... I like it. That's our VC lingo. Apologize. <laughs> I, I know that lingo. <laughs> um, but, you know, they've been able to uh, work with an industry that's incredibly difficult and archaic and get to a point where, again, you know, it's toothpaste out of the tube. Like, you're not going to pull pull the music out of Spotify at this point. And you know what? It's a better product. It, the product is so good, and they're so good it's as an independent company. Product. That's all. This that's all it takes. This isn't a time for me to say that I'm an Apple Music user, actually. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, okay, that, that, that's my final Spotify question is why Apple Music for you? Yes. <laughs> uh, I like the Playfest recommendations. They're, they've always worked for me. Oh, all right. You're one of... Well, a lot, but still. yeah, they, they have they have what like more than ten million now. So they you're do. not you're not part of a tiny minority. But, but I, I find Spotify Me way too. better myself. I do too. It's really into, it's product. It goes right back. You were talking about. All right, what's next for Megan Quinn after all this? Are you going to run a company? No, I'm going to be a venture capitalist for the foreseeable future. Uh, it's a commitment. You know, okay. when you become a VC, it's a little bit like um, getting married to a group. I mean, you're in it for the long haul. So right. um, my plan is to continue to build out Sparks Growth Fund with, uh, with Jeremy and team um, and have a lot of fun and hopefully a lot of success along the way. All right. No CEO for you? I always like to have a lady in a CEO position. I'm sorry. You know, never say never. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to when you come back when you're that. Anyway, thank you so much. We're here with Megan Quinn. She is a venture capitalist at Spark Capital and has been around the proverbial block in technology. Uh, Lots of companies. Casey, thank you so much. This was my pleasure, Kara, and happy birthday to you. Thank you so much Happy birthday. Thank you again. I can threaten to sing. I'll have another one. No, no, thank you. I'll have another one next year. Um, And it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. And thank you again, Casey. If you enjoyed the interview as much as we did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes. You can find more than 150 past interviews in whatever app you use to listen to this or on our website, recodednut slash podcasts. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the show. Now that you're done with this, you should check out other Recode Radio podcasts on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference. Keep an eye out for Casey's podcast, Converge, which is coming soon. Do we have a date yet? Uh, Stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right. The Verge also has several great podcasts for you to check out, including The Vergecast and Why'd You Push That Button? That's a really good name for That's a killer show, too. You You have to check it out. It's so much fun. Do you push buttons anymore? A surprising amount. All right, then. Uh, Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here at my usual time on Monday. Tune in then. 
Hey, this is Anna Sale from Death, Sex, and Money, the podcast from WNYC Studios. Our show is all about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. And one of those things is class. Oh boy, class. Right now, we're collecting stories about when you've felt your class the most. My friends wanted to go to these expensive restaurants, and it really did drive a wedge. Tell us your story. Email or send in a voice memo to class at deathsexmoney.org.